Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Dan Assel Show. I had the privilege to speak with Lord Stephen Carter, Group CEO of Informa, directly after the release of Informa's 2023 AGM trading update on the 15th of June. Informa is a leading business intelligence, academic, publishing, knowledge and B2B events group. Listed on the FTSE 100 in the UK, it has offices in more than 30 countries and employs 11,000 staff. Stephen joined Informa in 2010 as a non-executive director before becoming Group Chief Executive in 2013. Stephen also served as founding CEO of Ofcom, the UK's communications competition regulator, Chief of Strategy to the UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown, and was the first minister for the media and telecommunications industry, where he wrote and published the Digital Britain Report. He is currently on the board of Vodafone PLC and PA Media Group. This episode is sponsored by Mayfield Merger Strategies, the global specialists in M&A for exhibitions and events. The Dan Assel Show's official venue sponsor is Carbon Neutral Conference and Exhibition Centre, BDC London, who are currently setting their sights on reaching net zero by 2030. The show is also supported by TF Connect, Tarsus Group, Terrapin and 19 Group. Be notified first about new episodes by subscribing to my YouTube channel and by following me on Apple Podcasts and Spotify platforms. So Stephen, I want to dive straight into some of the headlines from yesterday's interim trading update for the period Jan to May 2023, where it was announced that revenues were on track to exceed pre-COVID levels this year, with informal markets specifically, which is home to hundreds of events across the world, posting particularly strong top-line revenue increase of 43.5%. Have you been surprised at the pace and scale of the post-COVID rebound in the B2B event sector? Um, surprised. Well, look, Dan, it's been a long road back. And funny enough, I've just come from a shareholder meeting with a shareholder who, um, uh, whom I knew well, and she individually and the fund that she represents had left our register in March 2020. So she opened the meeting by saying, Stephen, there's a lot that's happened since we last yeah. met. I said, that would be the understatement of the decade. Yeah, true. Uh, so to say that I've been surprised, I've walked every step of the last three and a half years. Um, I mean, look, I'm biased, we're biased. We always, did we know? We didn't know, but we sure as hell believed that the business that we'd built before COVID had a lot to offer customers and it would come back and that COVID would end, it was a question of when and how. Um, and indeed, by and large, COVID has ended everywhere in the world. Um, now, I'm, I'm never casual about that because there will be individuals and communities and people sure. who who suffered and had, a, had a, in some cases, had a tragic experience from COVID. But um, we were always confident that on the other side of COVID, um, the product that, you know, a, a world-class trade show serving a, a customer, a community, an industry in the right way, with the right services around it, with the right experience, and with the right use of technology and data, that's a super valuable thing. Um, and, and we're seeing that. And we're seeing that in every country, in every sector in which we operate. And you saw that in our numbers. Sure, because I was going to thank you. I was going to ask a follow-up question, because I, I read that you know, you said that through COVID, you took a long-term view, protecting and preserving your B2B brands, investing in digital and data. You've part answered it, but, you know, I was going to ask you, what did you know that perhaps people didn't? Or was it a gamble of some sorts? What, what gave you the confidence to, to keep investing in, that, in those areas? I mean, gamble's a good word. I think in sort of, you know, professional management speak, we call it a measured risk. But, I mean, what's the difference? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, we, we, made, we made probably five principal decisions during COVID, um, which really affected the way in which we navigated through that experience as informer. Other uh, people watching or listening to this will have had their own approach. Uh, we didn't furlough people. We didn't fire people. Uh, we didn't take government money. Um, we raised equity and we refinanced our debt and we took a long-term view that it might take as long as two years for it to come out the other side. But that when it came out the other side, we'd be in a strong position if we hadn't destroyed the company we'd built. That was our approach. Sure. Was it a gamble? Sure. Sure it was. It was a calculated set of judgments. Um, and 
Um, so look, it's it's felt like a long time coming. I mean, I'm jolly glad I'm having this conversation with you in um, in June 2023, not sure. June 2022 or or, or probably June 20. Um, and along the way, we've had a couple of ins and outs because China opened and then China closed. And um, there have been other places where it's been a bit more unpredictable. We postponed and rescheduled and postponed and rescheduled. But net-net, um, we're in a good spot. Um, it's been a real learning and living experience for those of us in this industry who've lived through it and inside Informa. Um, I think, as is often the case, let's be honest, when you find yourself in a little bit of adversity, shared adversity can create a great degree of, um, you know, kind of human connectivity and, and shared passion for something if you come out the other side. And we definitely are. Sure. Thank you. And the, outside of COVID, obviously, all businesses and individuals have had to contend with, I guess, the fallout from soaring inflation, high energy prices due to the war in Ukraine. You know, that's led to obviously cost pressures on businesses, higher wages, supply chain challenges. What strategies have Informa, I guess, implemented to mitigate these and continue to sort of moving forwards? Well, look, of all of those, I think all of the thing that most of us, as you say, is kind of real people rather than event professionals. Yeah. You know, I certainly look at with most human concern is the is the is the conflict in Ukraine. Um, I mean, I I never thought I'd be I'd be uh, you know seeing that level of military conflict in continental Europe in my lifetime. Um, but you're right; there are a lot of external market circumstances, macro circumstances. Um, I mean, we used we made a decision, the kind of a sub decision during COVID. We were we're a portfolio business, and we we had a relative to the group we had a we had a smallish portfolio of you know what had become you know beautifully formed data businesses um which traded under the the divisional umbrella umbrella of informer intelligence and we made a decision to sell those businesses during covid um which was slightly counterintuitive because they were sort of paying the bills at the time um uh, but we did it because they were high performing and we'd always been a relatively small player in that market. Um, and that had the effect of generating significant inflows of cash and capital. So that's allowed us to take our debt way down. So we're not actually carrying, we weren't carrying any debt in net terms by the end of last year. We, as you know, have just spent a bit of money acquiring the Tarsus business. But even on that basis, we're sitting at maybe one times earnings um, in terms of our debt levels, and we've got quite significant cash reserves on the balance sheet. So on the financial side, on the cost of money side, actually, our company is quite well insured uh, as a result of that. On energy, um, you know, we long ago went to pretty close to 100% renewable energy where we're an energy consumer um, in any of our businesses. Uh, we've put a lot of work into sustainability as a business, Um um, uh, in every sense of that word, uh, to try and manage impacts and, and have a more um, uh, environmentally sustainable approach to uh, uh, operating impact as a business. On costs, well, look, labor cost is our single biggest, talent cost is our single biggest cost, really. It's probably sure. 35, 40% of our cost base. Um, but, you know, we're, you know, this as well as I do, Dan, this is a talent business, it's a people business. So, you have to try and be on the right side of fairness. That's the way I always think about it. Are we on the right side of fairness with the majority of the people who work in the company? We won't get it right. I'm sure there'll be, and it might well be an informer colleague watching this saying, well, that, that's not my experience, but I would, I'd have a, I would sincerely hope that would be a very small minority. Um, and we manage our costs in other areas in order that if we do have discretionary money, we can put it towards talent rather than anything else. Sure. Thank you. Talent and, te ta talent and technology, I would say. Well, coming on to technology, you, you previously spoken about the reinvention of the business through tech and data. Uh, and I'm sure we could spend hours talking about technology and data, but sort of in a, in a nutshell, what did you mean by that in terms of reinventing the business through tech and data? Um, well, sort of two sides of the same coin. Sure. Um, let's take the company 
the easier one or maybe the more obvious one, which is there's no product invented, you know this, um, today or very few, where if you're not applying digital capability, uh, digital technology to enhance the service experience, you're probably not making that product as good as it can be. Sure. So in the event business, you know, simpler, easier, more intuitive registration systems, better space planning capability, better product discovery, better, um, you know, attendee management, better matching and meeting management capability, you know, data in advance of the event to enhance the experience for the customers, information and data after the event to enhance the experience for the customers. All of that is the application of digital service technology to the event experience. It doesn't change the core fundamental, which is you and I get to meet each other. You and I get to see each other. I get to see your product. Sure. You get to look at the light of my eyes and see if I'm a serious buyer. But it improves the all the overall experience. Data is you've got to know more about your customers and in particular about your buyers. Um, and and you, you need to know not just that you're called Dan Assor and that you're a professional uh, journalist or you become a professional oh, journalist. Don't say that. Uh, I, I meant that. As, I meant that as a compliment. Um, but you want to know, you know, what 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 are Dan's interests? What are Dan's passions? Is he, uh, you know, what what level of uh, a preference does he has? How, how much of a serious sure. buyer is he? You know, where is he looking? What sources of information is he after? And that kind of combination of profile data and behavioural data makes you much more knowledgeable about what's going on in the markets you're serving and much more knowledgeable about the customer. And if you can get that combination of a better product experience because of digital technology and rich data, which allows me to really understand Dan, the customer, it's a better business. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. Just gonna take a brief pause to tell you a bit about today's episode headline sponsor, Mayfield Merger Strategies. Mayfield Merger Strategies are the leading M&A brokers for the exhibition sector. What sets them apart is that they originally come from the exhibition organizing sector, so they truly understand the key factors that buyers look for in an exhibition business and can maximize valuations. They also understand that most entrepreneurs haven't sold a business before, so they project manage the entire acquisition process, ensuring that nothing gets missed and that you aren't sidetracked from running your shows. This, together with the great relationships they have with all the key buyers, ensures a very high success rate. For more information, visit mayfieldmerger.com. Now back to the podcast. I want to move on to talk about um, acquisitions. Obviously, lots of people that are watching this would have seen my interview with uh, Doug Emsley, former CEO of Tarsus and now a senior advisor at Informa. Uh, for those that weren't uh, or aren't aware, obviously the deal was announced for, I think, $940 million dollars um the acquisition in march and i know that that's now being completed at the time you said you've long admired the tarsus business and that you think it will be a fantastic combination with your existing business in the b2b markets why was tarsus such an attractive proposition look it's a great business it had good brands um it had learned to operate in geographies around the world which is hard to do um um, it had built a reputation with the, the kind of counterparties in the business that was extremely strong with venues and trade associations and joint venture partners. We had some ex-Tarsus uh, colleagues uh, inside Informa, and they'd always been impressive professionals in the field. Um, I'd had the privilege to get to know Doug a bit and Neville a bit over the years. And look, bear in mind, Dan, and I've said this to Tarsus colleagues those that I've had the chance to meet since they um, became part of the Informer Group or are becoming part of the Informer Group. Sure. Um, you know, nine years ago, our exhibitions business was smaller than Tarsus. Yeah. So it's not like, we, it's not like you know, we've been hanging around this hoop for 50 years. Um, and so when I um, started doing this job and we made a decision that we could, you know, we could possibly build, you know, the world's, biggest and best uh, business in this field. Um, you know, Tarsus is one of those businesses that you went to learn from. How did they do it? Sure. What have they done? How have they gone about doing it? 
Um, so there was, and, and then if I looked at the business that we'd built and bought over the years, it was quite geographically complementary. I also always thought from the outside, and now I definitely feel from the inside, that culturally it was quite complementary. I mean, we're a bit bigger than Tarsus, but actually the tone of the companies is very similar. I was having a chat the other day with Steve Monnington, who runs Mayfield Merger Strategies, and they do a lot of M&A for exhibitions and events. And something he suggested that I should ask you uh, is when you acquire businesses like Tarsus, how do you view their own pipeline of potential acquisitions? Um, they definitely were. They definitely did. And we were definitely interested in receiving that list. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, <laughs> okay. and, and watch, watch that. Watch this space. Obviously, recently as well, Informer announced, uh, I think it was in May, the acquisition of Winsight, um, who served the restaurant, non-commercial food service, convenience, retailing and grocery industries. How important are vertical plays now to the business? And to what extent is that, that's, I guess, a signal of an intention to horizontalize the business? Cool, blimey. I've never heard anyone use horizontal as a... As a verb, horizontalize. Might <laughs> steal that. I, I mean, if you, I may even have it. Some have I got an annual report? Yeah, I do. I've got an annual report. Um, He's off. If you look at our annual report, if you look at our annual report, um, I said this yesterday at our AGM, which I'm sure none of your uh, viewers um, were watching. Um, uh, our mission statement as a company, and people kind of poo-poo mission statements, but if you get them right, they have some value. Ours is champion the specialist. Okay. That's what we say. That's our job. Yeah. That's what we do. In everything we do in Informa, in all of our businesses, we champion the specialist. And I think that's a pretty good summary of the importance of horizontalization, as we now call it professionally. Yeah. Essentially, you need to be the more deeply steeped you can be in the industry you serve, the better you're going to be able to provide any product or service and the more credible you're going to be as, a, as an enabler and a facilitator and a provider for your customers. Sure. And in our business, I'm sure this is true in many other businesses, you know, we have really outstanding subject matter experts. I mean, outstanding subject matter experts in verticals. And actually... For many of those people, if they've spent 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years in beauty or industrials or healthcare or biotechnology or aviation, they're not then going to suddenly wake up one morning and say, Do you know what? I really think I'd be interested in moving from aviation to natural food products. They are, they're, 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 they're really knowledgeable about an industry. The same, I think, applies more broadly, which is you can surround a customer with other services. And so to your point about either horizontalization or verticalization, the deeper you can be in an industry, I think as long as you're not in such random adjacencies that you're spread too thin, sure. it enhances your market knowledge and the quality of each of your individual products. Winsight was a great example of that. Um, they had built a portfolio. They had an out, they've got an outstanding market leading trade show, which um, is the marquee brand in that market. They've got an outstanding um, specialist research and, uh, and project consulting business um, with a longstanding rec reputation, Technomics, um, very like our Omdia business in, um, in our technology portfolio or Kappa in our aviation portfolio. And they have a series of digital media assets. And that allows you to really be able to play notes for your customers about how they want to bring a product to market or meet a buyer or build profile or get smarter or get more knowledgeable. Do I think we would ever end up as a company completely verticalized, yeah. to use another word? I doubt it because it doesn't work everywhere. Geographically, it doesn't work everywhere by end market. But as a direction of travel, are we doing more of that? Yes, we are. I want to talk about the fact that in Forma, you've got many sort of highly successful pure play exhibitions 
and conference businesses, but also, I guess, over the last decade more so, you've invested a lot in hybrid marketing services, one-to-one partnerships, I think, for example, in life sciences. So those, I guess, are put into, I guess, the phrase of event plus models. Um, is that going to be the future for Informa? Do you still see a role for pure play events? I'm Yes, is the short answer to both questions. I think that is the model. I think you've got to constantly innovate. I think a lot of the things you refer to in the Events Plus model are examples of enhancing the customer experience by the application of digital service technology. Matchmaking is a good case in point. Um, But equally, you can do an absolutely outstanding pure play, what you and I might describe as a traditional event product, and in the right market at the right time and the right geography with the right end customers, on its day, nothing beats that. Sure. And I, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. And also, I've never subscribed to the view that industrializing to a format is the way this business operates at its best. But that doesn't mean that you can't seek to apply some degree of standardization some degree of platform technology, some degree of data capture, some degree of kind of systems efficiency. Um, If it's a total free-for-all, you're probably not getting the benefits of scale. If you try to make it, you you know, here's my format, fill in the blanks, then you lose the benefits of personalization and multi-local and close to your customer. This is dead easy to say on a on a you know on a camera or yeah. in a chat with you as you and i know it's thousands of colleagues in informa know it's a lot harder to get sure. it right on the ground in a team with a brand and in a company and i'll be honest we don't get it right all of the time and sometimes people will say this is too loosey-goosey for me and other times people will say you're just this is a straight jacket i can't work i don't have enough freedom so you're always slightly toggling between those two but I don't think you can only be one. I don't think you can just be everybody does it the way they want to do it. Sure. A good chunk of my audience are from the UK. Though I do get uh, people from all over the world watching. Um, so it'd be remiss of me, unfortunately, to talk about uh, the B word, Brexit. I, I just want to get a flavour of what's the ongoing impact of Brexit um, in terms of altering the strategy or your view that the company has on the UK market. To be honest, I mean, I've got my own personal views on Brexit, which are, you know, of no interest to anyone sure. other than me. But um, I mean, we are an almost completely Brexit neutral business operationally. I mean, we're listed in the United Kingdom. Um, and so if Brexit has had an impact on capital flows in and out of the market, then that's had an effect on us because we're listed here in the United Kingdom. Sure, um, sure. If it's had an effect on the value of the currency, it's had an effect on us. But actually, we are a very, very, very small operator in the United Kingdom market. Yeah. Um, And um, the vast majority of our business and our revenues gets conducted in North America, in China, in the Middle East, in South America, um, in continental Europe. We do do some things in the United Kingdom. In fact, ironically, I'm chatting to you this week, Dan, where... London Tech Week, which is one of ours, um, has actually been on and has been super successful. But um, that's really the exception, not the rule. So I don't, I mean, we're unusual in that sense in that Brexit's a big effect, a big event that's had a, a big impact on the country in which we're headquartered and domiciled, but it hasn't really had an effect on our business. Sure, thank you. And, and a good segue into London Tech Week and, and, and about the UK. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about AI uh, recently, you know, both in all sectors, including uh, the event industry and how it's going to affect people. And UK, obviously, our UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said he wants the UK to be a key player in global AI regulation. And I think um, the UK are going to host the first global summit on that. Can you just talk to about how Informa is sort of tackling the AI question um, and what it sort of means to the business, do you think, moving forwards? Well, look, we were delighted to see, to, you, to have London Tech Week as the backdrop for sure. um, uh, many of these discussions here. Um, that's been an outstanding um, success for us. 
we bought we bought in we bought into that business a good few years back. We then partnered with Founders Forum. We then became a minority shareholder in Founders Forum, and we've turned London Tech Week into an international calendar event. It's a pure play example of how do you build a franchise uh, pretty much from scratch. Um, as part of that, we had another product, uh, AI Summit, which again we started a few years back. Sure. That's now become a really you know. You know, big brand in our technology um, portfolio. Um, AI, we've got heaps of AI deployment inside Informa everywhere, from the back office to the mid office to the front office, in marketing, in invoicing, in customer access, in uh, you know, in content verification, in authentication. I mean, is there going to be more of it? Yes. Is it on balance an opportunity to do? Um, to do more things that you can automate, yes. To free up more time, to add more values to things that you can't automate, yes. Is that bad news for anyone inside the company? I mean, conceivably, there might be some specific roles which over time you don't need as many of. But, I mean, we're a growth business, Dan. I mean, last year sure. we hired 1,500 colleagues. This year we're probably hiring 100, 150 new new roles a month. Uh, I, don't, I don't personally see it as uh, I, I, it, it's a new technology uh, or it's a development of an existing technology. Um, and probably the only difference between other transformative technologies that I've seen is I suspect this one might move at a faster pace because it doesn't, it, sure. it, it needs an enormous amount more computing power, but it doesn't need an enormous amount of capital. It's not an infrastructure, it's a software capability largely or a set of software capabilities. So I think it will help us in in the speed and accuracy and possibly creativity and relevance of customized content. Um, and it will reduce some of the more uh, tedious uh, jobs that can be automated and free up more time to make our products that our customers value more customized, more creative, more compelling. I also have a personal view, and here I'm editorializing, but we touched on this a bit yesterday at our results release. The more and more these things happen, I think there's a disproportionate increase in the value of human meeting. So the rise of, you know, to, to put it in really colloquial terms, the rise of the robot actually has the perverse uh, consequence of enhancing the value of human engagement. And at the core of the B2B product that we offer and other people offer, a trade show, an exhibition, a conference, a confex, it's a human interaction which sits on top of a lot of digital technology, but the value of that human interaction gets more and more important. Sure. Okay, thank you. So hopefully we're not going to be replaced by robots just yet <laughs> or, or in the near future, in the near future. Hi, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'm going to take a brief pause to tell you a little bit more about our official venue sponsor, the Business Design Centre. The BDC is London's most stylish venue, playing host to hundreds of conferences and exhibitions every year. It is also the permanent home to over 125 businesses who occupy the offices and showrooms based there all year round. Opened over 36 years ago in 1986 and formerly the Royal Agricultural Hall, the building was rescued from demolition in 1981 by entrepreneur Sam Morris and was fully restored and reopened as the UK's first integrated trade exhibition and conference complex. Today, the BDC attracts almost one million visitors every year. Sustainability is at the forefront of everything they do at the BDC with a goal to reach net zero before 2030. For over 13 years, it has been a certified carbon neutral venue and the steps they have taken to improve their impact on the planet have been recognised within the events industry and further. The BDC has received recognition with multiple awards, including Exhibition News CSR Award in both 2018 and 2019, and more recently the EN ESG Award in 2022. Please visit bdc.london for more information. Now back to the podcast. Just in summary, what do you see are the key challenges for the events industry over the next um, maybe 12 to 36 months? Look, I think the next 12 to 36 months 
could be and should be, I mean, let's put possible macro activities to one side. Sure. If we as an industry continue to do what we could do, I think this could be a really, really powerful three years. The world is reopening. Um, there are supply chains that need to be refilled. There's new products that need to come to market. As you say, there's a, there's a technology innovation coming in software, which I think is going to create some exciting opportunities. Markets are moving into more and more specialist areas. There are huge swathes of the world that are expanding economically and socially in Asia, in China, in Africa, in South America, in Eastern Europe. Uh, and I think there's a real opportunity for the best of what we do as an industry to be really valuable as part of that. It looks at the moment like there may be some parts of the world that have a sort of muted level of GDP growth, but it seems as though we might be able to avoid a structural long-term recession. If military conflict doesn't um, uh, expand beyond the current uh, terms and God willing, sure. there is some breakout of peace, I am relatively, I'm, I hope I'm sort of thoughtfully optimistic about the next 12 to 36 months. I want to ask you, during the, the, the pandemic, I guess the, the relationship between the events industry and government probably wasn't as strong as it, it could have been. Um, and maybe the, the government, you know, the policies were reflected in that, and specifically in the trade show and exhibition set, uh, sectors. They maybe didn't understand that events were, such a broad church obviously you've served within government how do you think industries in general can influence the government more are you talking about in the united kingdom or generally i would say in the uk first but if if you can bring some uh, flavor from an international perspective that would also be useful thank you um i think it helps immeasurably if you're dealing with a government or a government structure, rather than a government, government structure, where strategically what the trade show and exhibition or what in the jargon is often called the mice industry, meetings, information, you know, communications, entertainment and events, is central to the strategy of the government entity. And I think where you tend to see that most is in cities, city-states, smaller countries and countries with where manufacturing is central to what they do. It, I mean, it's no coincidence that the biggest trade show markets in the world are China, uh, uh, Germany, um, North America, and parts of the Middle East. And that's largely because either the location has decided, I'm going to use trade shows and my geographical location to bring thousands of people here as a neutral meeting place, Dubai, um, you know, as an example, Singapore, as an example, Hong Kong, as an example, um, or that big manufacturing economies, North America, China, Germany, or sub-states, the state of Florida, the state of Colorado, the state of California, the greater barrier, the city of Shanghai have decided this is central to our strategy in running this location, running this area. Here in London, part of the reason why London Tech Week has been successful this year and over the last few years is we've worked hand in glove with the mayor's office and the government to bring the technology industry to London in a coordinated fashion. I think that really is the key ingredient. If there isn't that strategic recognition, operational recognition, that business tourism capacity, infrastructure, access, government endorsement. If you're trying to persuade people of that value, then you're probably on the back foot and it's not going to work. And then you get into some basic things like, does the location have capacity? Yeah. As you and I both know, I mean, look, Adnec do a fantastic job with Excel and Excel is a, is a great location. NEC is a great location. Um, Olympia, I'm sure when it comes back on stream will be a great location. And there are some other spot locations in the United Kingdom, like Tobacco Dock and Glasgow, which are great locations. But at scale, you want a scale trade show event, you know, 
look at Shenzhen, look at Dubai, look at Vegas, look at, um, you know, many other places in the world. Um, and, and that's where you see a lot of trade show volume because venue capacity is a kind of prerequisite. So there are a lot of moving parts on that. Yeah. But at, at its heart, I think it helps if the location or the government or the city or the state sees the mice industry as central to their own strategy, because then you're pushing on an open door. Makes sense. Then, it's, then they're both aligned. I understand. Thank you. Um, just want to quickly move on to one of the other central issues that are dominating um, specifically the trade show and exhibition space of sustainability. And you touched upon it before. I mean, obviously, Informa organises hundreds of trade shows each year. This huge environmental impact, you know, from greenhouse gas em emissions, venue energy, venue waste, material waste, booth construction, so on. Um, what do we think the, the industry could be doing more of in this area? And what strategies and measures have Informa got in place to offset this impact? Look, I mean, one of the advantages that we've had at Informa is that in certainly at, at the scale we're now operating in, uh, in, in that market, we've really built this business over the last 10 years. And, and so we had the opportunity really to build in sustainability pretty much from the ground up. Um, we hired somebody about seven, eight, nine years ago who was a, who was a partner in a consulting firm who was an expert in this area. We, we, we bolstered him with external resource and internal resource. And then we invented our own program, which we called Faster Forward, Faster to Zero. Um, yeah. So we've been at this now for six, seven, eight years. And we've invested time and money and resource and capability. Um, uh, we started out by trying to create a framework. We chose the DJSI, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, as the framework that we would uh, we would use. We entered the DGSI index, I think, for the first time in 2018. We then started setting science-based target levels, which we would seek to follow. We launched a, a whole program around energy consumption, uh, around carbon neutral accreditation, around better stands, around what we called the fundamentals program. We achieved a CDP rating. Um, we offset, we, we paid to offset 100% of all of our colleagues' travel. In 2021, we then ended up as the number one ranked uh, business in our sector globally in what we were doing here. Um, um, we've piloted carbon offset programs for attendees. I mean, we've taken this very, very seriously now for quite a few years. There's work still to do um, in the United Kingdom. There's now a whole set of accounting obligations on public companies um, sure. uh, that's around disclosures, carbon impacts. So I think this train has definitely left the station in a good way. It's 100% central to what we do and how we think about a sustainable business, uh, sustainable growth, sustainable profit, sustainable investment, sustainable technology, and sustainable, sustainable. So I, I just think it's become a if you excuse the pun, it's become a hygiene factor. Um, if you want to be a successful business, particularly in the public markets, if you haven't built this into the the architecture of your business, if you're kind of sticking it on, um, you're going to struggle. Sure. It, it's been pretty much 10 years, uh, Stephen. Um, I think it was 10th of July, the announcement was made that you were going to take on the role as group CEO. Um I read a stat, the average tenure of the FTSE 100 CEO is 5.4 years. Why do you think you've bucked that trend? Uh, who knows, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not counting. Uh, uh, I hope no one else is apart from you. Um, and... Um, it, it, it's been a it's been a game of three halves to use a footballing <laughs> badly yeah. use a footballing metaphor. I mean, uh, you know, I first of all had to learn my way into the job. We then we then set about doing growing the business we've got and and repairing our intelligence and data businesses. We then hit COVID. That was a survival chapter. 
in that survival chapter, we decided to double down on our two big engines, B2B markets and academic markets. Now we've come out the other side and we're in the third chapter. And I think we're going to have a fantastic next three to five years. I'm enjoying it. Uh, I hope I'm still doing a good job. Um, every chief executive says this. Um, you know, Informer is in its own uh, little way, quite a unique place. Um, I give my predecessor, Peter Ribby, um, uh, you know, due and a lot of credit for that. There was always a, a, a kind of specialness to the culture of Informer. I was a, had the, I had the privilege of being a non-executive director for a few years before I became chief executive. So I've been around the company for a while, sure. um, actually a bit longer than the, the 10 years that you describe. Uh, and it's become, sure. it's become, you know, a significant part. And at times it feels like the entire part of my life. Um, and, uh, and I think we've got much more we can do. Um, so let's hope that no one else is, counting <laughs> i didn't say i was counting i was just me merely stating merely stating a fact do you think your your well, leadership up, style um <laughs> or adding up do you think your your leadership style has evolved um, not only over that time but over the duration of your career um just sort of keen to understand how you know people in positions for a a, a significant period of time should i say sort of have to evolve and adapt Uh, I think so. I mean, look, leadership is a bit like anything, isn't it? It's like, the, have you ever read that book? Um, I think it was called Open, which was the, I think it was either a biography or an autobiography. I think it was an autobiography of Andre Agassi. And yeah. he talked about his whole life experience and how he ended up as the outstanding tennis player he was. And I think in there, he came up with the 10,000 hour principles, which is, sure. you know, if you want to be really, really good at something, you've got to put a lot of time into it. Yeah. Um, in you know some way, shape, or form, uh, and I don't mean this hopefully in a boastful way. I'm just a bit like you. I'm just adding it up. You know, I've been leading companies or organizations for the best part of thirty years. I mean, yeah. if my leadership style hasn't evolved, well, God help the poor pe people are having to live <laughs> with it. And and I would hope, as well as evolving, it's got a, it's got a bit better. We had a board meeting yesterday, and I said to my board that I think we had a big discussion about AI to go back to your earlier, earlier comment. And I said, look, yeah. there's a, you know, the dynamism in technology is very evident. Um, the dynamism in the external markets is very evident. But one of the things that I think is really changing, and I observe this as a leader of a company, is what I would call the dynamism in culture, in the, in, in the culture of a company. Um, Businesses and culture, it, it's so different now than it, when it was when I first ran a business in my early 30s. And generally for the better. It's much more diversity. There's much more authenticity. There's much less formality, uh, sort of, you know, stuffy, um, I think, unhelpful formality. Um, uh, it's much more fluid. Uh, you have to be much more flexible as an employer. And if leadership is your craft or your job, and it's both my job and my craft, if you can't adapt to that level of cultural dynamism, well, I think you'll struggle. And so I think you have to evolve um, uh, over time. And, and I enjoy that learning process. Uh, as a leader, I, I, find, I, I find myself trying to think more about leadership now than I did when I, when I first started doing it. Sure. So in summary, what would you say would be the, the key traits of a, that a modern leader needs to have? All things being equal, obviously, all businesses, different shapes and sizes I get, but. I, don't, I mean, you've got to want to do it. I mean, that's true of any job. Sure. I always say if you're recruiting someone for a job, if you've got two candidates and they're sort of about the same ability or one of them is marginally better than the other technically or on competence, who's the one who really wants it most? You've really got to want it. You know, and particularly big leadership roles, they demand a lot of your emotional energy. So you've got to really want to do it. Uh, I think you have to be curious. Um, 
I definitely think to your question, Dan, you have to be, you have to have flexibility and agility in the way in which you adapt your leadership style, particularly if like us, you're operating in, we probably operate at reasonable scale in 20 or 30 very different cultures. You have to, you can't arrive with a kind of, well, here's the way we do it. I don't think. Um, and, but I also do subscribe to the view that ultimately, and maybe we've seen a bit of this in the United Kingdom, you know, serious leadership responsibility rarely develops character, but it invariably reveals it. And I think there are some characteristics and character traits that if you're going to step into a big leadership role, you know, look in the mirror because whatever those character traits are will be visible to many, many people, not just to yourself. You once said that life can only be generally understood backwards, but you have to live life looking forwards. Um, yep. What did you mean by that? I'm a great believer in what I call the uh, in the gal in a galaxy far, far away school of uh, thinking. You know, it's, <laughs> I think if you if you're dealing with an issue, um, it's generally unhelpful to have no sense of context. Where where how have we ended up here? Now you don't want to be the boring corporate historian or the kind of the nerdy dullard in the corner, but um, I, I think it's it's really helpful to have some sense of context and. I think it's helped me do this job that I was on the board for three or four years as a non-executive. I had a sense of where the informer company came from. But that's never going to get you to where you want to be. You've got to look forward. If, you're, if really your view of what to do next is determined by the past, you probably won't get there. But if it's completely uninformed about the past, I think you can make some quite significant step mistakes or cultural errors and now there will be moments in time where those things are not true sometimes it is helpful just to have somebody who's completely unencumbered by history and that's normally when you've got a business or which has for some reason just gone completely off the rails that was not our case but our challenge at informer was it was a it was a very strong culture it was quite a distinctive place but how could we be a bigger and better version of what we were? How could we have more ambition, more reach? How could we shape an industry? And that required us to look forward, to look at technology, to look at the United States, to look at China, um, to look at what did market leadership mean and how could we get there? That was a forward-looking need. But I think you have to have both. Thank you. Who's been your biggest personal influence, would you say, over your career? I'm going to say something that's going to sound like a terrible cliche, Dan, um, but I hope you'll forgive me in the comfort and confidence of your virtual studio yeah. if I say it happens, to be, if it happens to be true. Number one on that list would be my wife, um, um, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and then number two on that list, um, on the kind of curiosity principle, would be for whatever reasons, and maybe this speaks to my own personal history, I've always been open to being mentored. I've sought mentors. And I sure. have had the good fortune both in my, my line bosses and indeed in more senior people, people who have reached out and, and mentored me um, or guided me or given me advice. But I think it's also been because I've been open to it and I've wanted it. Um, and, and there are a number of people, I will not name check them all, but there have been a, you know, a goodly number of people who have been generous in their, in their counsel and in their advice. Um, and I think if you can find somebody who you can trust entirely, doesn't have to be your wife or husband or partner or could be a friend, and if you can be open to multiple influences, then you have a place of emotional and practical security, and then a significant kind of brains and experience trust to draw upon, I think that gives you ballast. 
and context. And, I, and I've been fortunate to have both of those things. Thank you. And have you, have you, have you got a proudest achievement? Obviously, you, you've led many, many businesses, been involved in many companies, government. Is there one single moment or, or position that you've taken up that you sat back and thought, well, the, yeah, this, this is something I'm immensely proud of? There have been a few. I have, there have been a good. There, I've been lucky. There have been a good few. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, to take topical one, I'm, I tell you, I said this to my wife uh, late last night, but I eventually got home. You know, I felt yesterday we had our AGM in June 2023. I felt super proud of the Informa company. I mean, you know, we nearly hit the rails during COVID. You know, sure. we lost half of our revenues in the space of two months, and. The team here, the company, the culture, our shareholders, our board. You know, we, like many people in the events and exhibitions industry, we spent many a day, many a week, many a month answering the, don't you think events are dead? No one's ever going to meet again. Can't we just do this all on Teams or Zoom or or hop in? And, uh, you know, and it's been a long road back. And we held our nerve. Um uh, we held the company. Um, we did it in a very collective way. And we have come out the other side as a better company. I think a better culture, to your point, um, uh, with an outstanding array of brands and a market position. And we can we can see a path to further growth and strength with some degree of confidence, Dan, for the next two to three years. And I have to be honest, I feel really proud of that. Thank you. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Um, really appreciate your candor. Um, the informative answers to your questions could have gone on for a long period of time. I was also going to ask you whether you felt that you're, you're, you, whether you felt disappointment that Nadine Doris wouldn't be joining you in the House of Laws, but perhaps that'd be unfair. I think that was other people um listen dan i've enjoyed the conversation and i hope you genuinely have to and i hope if anyone chooses to watch it they get some something out of it that's useful but uh thanks for giving me the uh, opportunity thank you